0: welcome to the propaganda report this is monica perez with my co-host brad binkley and this is one of our few friday featured interviews today we are talking to robert frederick of the hidden life is best podcast it is my favorite new podcast. It is absolutely original and informative. It is one of those few podcasts that I listen to the same episode more than once. So I am dying to hear just a big picture, what it's about, what Robert Frederick is about and just kind of you'll you'll see why I love it. Hello, Robert. How are you?
1: Hello, Monica. Hello, Brad. How's it going? Uh, good, good, feeling good. Very happy to be here with you.
0: It's a real pr- privilege to meet you, to talk to you. I met you in person at one of the meetups. It was such a pleasure and I've been hooked on your work ever since. But I don't I don't know any of your backstory. Why don't you just tell us like what got you to where you are? Because I can tell that it is a lot of work for you to put that podcast out. I mean, it's really like taking a college course. That's how I feel. But except for it's interesting and fun and has a lot of (laughs) style. So what I mean, obviously, that's going to take some effort. Tell us where you were and how you got here
1: well i was thinking about that because you asked me to speak about that i guess i've always had a wide range of interests from history and science to mysticism and art literature politics religion you know just one of those types and i living in new york in the 80s it was still a very lively place intellectually so that kind of behavior was encouraged and you were It's very stimulating, a lot of sharing of ideas and people reading books and books are everywhere. So a lot of bookstores and books on the street. And I somehow got, you know, interested in like, why is the world so messed up? Because I meet a lot of people and almost everyone's fair and fairly intelligent. You can tell they want to live and let live. I just started thinking about this, thinking about this. And eventually, at some point, uh, studying history and world politics, I just came to the conclusion that a lot of the problems in the world come from the British Empire. And every time I looked at some situation in the world, England had been there, probably drawn borders through, you know, competing tribes, just redrawing the borders everywhere in the world, you know, settling continents everywhere. This incredibly successful empire that seemed avaricious and and greedy and weird, but the reputation was, you know, having cucumber sandwiches with the pinky raised in the garden, you know, with some tea. And it, it just, I have to, I have to try to understand this. And at some point, as I'm doing my research, um, this is many years later. This is very recently. Uh, I stumbled on a podcast from Michael Wan, who you have interviewed.
0: Yes, you, I love yeah. him. Yes, yeah. Susquehanna yeah, alchemy. So,
1: exactly. So, so I went to college on the Susquehanna River. And Michael Wan says this. River was actually named for the Egyptian goddess Isis, and that this was because the occult secret society of Rosicrucians had been responsible for the famous Jonestown landing in 1619 from England, landing in what is now Virginia where the Susquehanna River empties after its journey from New York State. I was astonished to learn from Susquehanna River alchemy that Francis Bacon was a key part of the jamestown corporation that first settled america yes that's right jamestown was an english corporation francis bacon not only helped settle america he thought of america as the new atlantis but also converted rosicrucianism into freemasonry edited the king james bible wherein he apparently asserted much freemasonry and rosicrucian symbolism Francis Bacon created the scientific method, authored multiple treatises, and was also probably a major part of the small group of people that was Shakespeare, whose writings are filled with the occult. He was absolutely definitely the major architect of the new world order against which our tribe struggles, as all conspiracy roads lead to London from whence he came. So I guess we should tell the people, the name of my podcast is The Hidden Life is Best, Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. But Bacon's really famous for going from magic to science. Bacon's famous for starting the scientific revolution, uh, for starting uh, the whole idea of, of a group science effort. He's considered to be the beginning of the Enlightenment era which takes us out of the Renaissance and the dark ages where there was so much interest in the occult and magic. And I have always had this thing about science, like it's, it's got too much of an importance in our society. It's, it's, people see it as a religion now. I think science has become a religion. I think we're seeing that very clearly with the pandemic. Uh, And trust the science. You know, we used to say trust in God. Now it's trust in science. Where science is not all that it's cracked up to be.
0: I think it's even more obvious when you think of it as that the scientists are the priests and the texts are not in the vernacular and the scientists have to interpret the texts for the people.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you're you are told not even to research anymore, just listen. And of course, if you really know anything about science, you know that's not how science works. And science doesn't actually prove anything. It can only disprove things. And they're just controlling it exactly like religion was controlled. And now you can debate religion till the cows come home. You can't debate science anymore. And during Francis Bacon's day, you could debate science all you wanted. It kind of wasn't even up much for debate, but you could not debate religion. You could not be anything but Christian in in London at that time. You had to attend Anglican church. There were no Jews in England at all. There was just one religion that was not to be debated. You could sort of debate against Catholic church, debate the church, but the actual theology was sad. I mean, you could not be not Christian, let's say. Uh, So it's just been flipped on its head completely. But it made me decide to look into Francis Bacon. He just, his name keeps coming up. And I know the British Empire is really messed up the world in multiple ways. And you just go anywhere in the world, Australia, India, Russia, World War I, World War II, probably reading Guido Preparata.
0: Um, I'm a big fan conjuring of Conjuring Hitler
1: yeah. uh, Conjure
0: and the ideology of tyranny.
1: And the ideology and also, of
0: tyranny. Yeah. Go ahead. He, he also wrote Catholic social teaching and I I have a suspicion that if I actually open that one he'll probably lose me.
1: <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean ide- ideology of tyranny there was another synchrony synchronicity with that because eventually I discovered gnosticism. Gnosticism was the missing piece in the Bacon picture. And I had bought, after I read uh, Conjuring Hitler, I had bought Ideology of Tyranny, but I, I couldn't understand it. It just yeah, seems so dense to me. It's too dense. Yeah. I threw it on the bookshelf. As I'm really getting into Gnosticism now and Bacon, I say, oh, there's that Preparata book. Pull it off the bookshelf. And the subtitle is The. uh, ideology of tyranny, Gnosticism, and American political discourse, something like that. But Gnosticism is in the subtitle of the book. And I, again, I was like, Lord, he was on to that. He was on to the Gnosticism.
0: Have you dis- defined for us Gnosticism yet? Can you define that? Uh,
1: no. Or am I jumping I ahead? I can define that. Uh, I think we're jumping ahead a little bit. All right, But wait. I can I'm not good at yeah, waiting. Because that's a key, a key piece of the puzzle here. But should I okay, tell I'll wait, i wait, i wait bacon was a little bit more. Yeah. Let me just say more about Francis Bacon, because the thing is, the guy was incredible. I say in the very first podcast that he's the most influential man who ever lived and the smartest man who ever lived. Now, obviously, I can't obviously can't prove the smartest man, but you can debate the most influential man. And short of some religious leaders, Big names, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, who are obviously hugely influential. If science is now the new religion, you can place Bacon as a religious leader, too. So he does, in fact, compete with some of the most all-time influential people in history. And I think at this point he's bypassed them. And I do think he is the most influential man who ever lived. But nobody really thinks about him like that. Because he stayed hidden. He stayed hidden on purpose because he was deeply involved in espionage and spying. And that is a key part of the Elizabethan era. It's like everyone was a spy, it was a pressure cooker. Every, literally, all the aristocrats had their own spy networks. And, you know, Spain is trying to overthrow each England. Other?
0: Again, within, uh, like possibly. within
1: England and stuff? Absolutely. Some very, very famous people lost their heads in Elizabethan England. One was Sir Walter Raleigh. was considered a great writer.
0: Wasn't he the favorite? Yeah.
1: The stupid get. You know, the guy who brought tobacco back. I
0: know.
1: Uh, from Virginia. He's the first one that went to Virginia. He was one of the greatest explorers of his era. He was Nobility. He was a great writer. He wrote a book called The History of the World while he was locked up in the Tower of London. And he eventually lost his head because there were there were plots. I mean, Elizabeth was very vulnerable. And then James was vulnerable. And all you really need to do is gather a small army and you know, storm London and you know, take away the crown. And so they developed espionage and spying to an art form to an exquisite art form. And the British Secret Service became by far the best spies in the world.
0: Wasn't this all during the time of Mary going for the crown as well? Like there must have been That's real paranoia, big,
1: big, big, part of it. Uh, big part. I just read Schweig
0: on her. So it was a good one.
1: Queen. Mary, Queen of Scots. Yes, Stefan Mary?
0: Schweig wrote uh-huh. a few good biographies Marie Antoinette and one of them was Mary Queen of Scots who Mary Queen of Scots was the the contender for the throne to take away from Elizabeth right I know right. she was Scotland but Queen of Scots maybe something different okay got it, got it got it got it
1: right Queen of Scots she was related to Elizabeth she was Catholic yes and the Catholics wanted her on the throne and she had trouble in Scotland, so she came to England to escape her troubles in Scotland, and England said, come on in, you're the half-sister, I think, or she was of I thought she was the That's half-sister, right. yeah. Half-sister of Bloody Mary.
0: I thought she direct- was the half-sister of Elizabeth, and that her son was the rightful heir, even to Elizabeth.
1: No, sure. Elizabeth was half-sister to Bloody Mary, who preceded her on the throne, who burnt all the Protestants. Elizabeth comes to the throne and she's a Protestant. They slipped back Uh, uh, from Catholicism uh, and Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, was her uh, cousin. Okay, okay. Yeah. Who was related to Henry VII.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And Henry VIII. They're all cousins, the Tudor family. But she did have a claim to the throne and the Catholics wanted her on the throne. And that included a lot of the English, included the Spanish, who were the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and included the, the Vatican. Rome. They're all plotting to kill Elizabeth. And so they had to spy, they had to do counterintelligence and send spies into Europe. And they had to spy on each other to see if there's not a plot coming around. And they were so brilliant that they actually created a plot called the Babington plot and busted it and used it as proof to show Elizabeth that Mary, Queen of Scots, was after the throne. And Elizabeth had to chop her head off. She didn't want to, supposedly, but they, they basically created fake evidence because Mary Queen of Scots kind of got railroaded into this.
0: Yeah, they it seemed like it went this- back and forth with her and she like fell in love with that guy. Like she, Mary Queen of Scots, sometimes she was in the right and sometimes she was in the wrong, but she, has, she was so unlucky.
1: Well, if you look in, I don't know if you talked about in the book, but they created this thing called the Babington plot. Mm-hmm. Possibly out of whole cloth. Like, Babington probably thought he was working for the good guys, but they created these elaborate plots and then just killed everyone involved in them, even if one of them had been their guy. Right. Kind of of like Lee Harvey Oswald, frankly.
2: It's kind of like a I lot think. of
1: things right now. The
2: stuff you're saying is really resonating, creating spy networks all over the place. I feel like that's going on right now, digitally, except and fake evidence being conjured up just to create scenarios against your opposition or, or your enemy or whatever. It's very parallel.
0: See, I feel like, exactly. I feel like it's different. And I want Robert to, to, bring us from there to here at at some point, because. Oh, no, it's exactly
1: the same. You think that
0: there's still this much um, competition for power? You don't feel like it's been consolidated that that Rhodes's plan for the British Empire hidden is is more intact now than it was when it was first conceived by Bacon?
1: No, it's definitely more consolidated. But the tricks they use on the people and on the public
0: oh okay now we're really FBI jumping ahead same.
1: okay yeah. all right and this will come okay. out in Macbeth. <laughs> okay so that's a little bit of a background on uh the tudor london scene Got which i do it. in the first podcast where i introduce yes. you to francis bacon yes. but also the the times of francis bacon which is tudor london yes which is an incredibly fascinating place i i think of it as like athens with socrates florence with you know
0: but unsung. but unsung, but unsung, people don't think to, of it like that. He hit, that. hit a yeah. lot of it. He could Bacon,
1: have. People don't think of Bacon. They think of Elizabeth. They think of Shakespeare, right? They do know about Walsingham. They think about the explorers and the British Navy. They do think of Bacon as a great intellectual who, you know, started the scientific revolution. But. Bacon was much, much, much bigger than that. And that's really what the podcast is about, because the more I started reading about him, uh, it turns out that he was this. Recognized as one of the greatest philosophers of all time, particularly for his work in, in, in creating the scientific revolution and encouraging science. He was a cheerleader of science, kind of denigrating magic. Magic and the occult were huge at the time. Astrology, alchemy, numerology, gematria was huge. Uh, he wanted to reform the English language, which he did on his own, not even counting Shakespeare with the essays. He was a lawyer. And after Elizabeth died, uh, he, he eventually became attorney general of England under James, who followed. So that leaves Elizabethan era and goes to the Jacobian and era. James was uh, Mary, Queen of
0: Scots, son, right?
1: correct okay so scotland eventually does take the throne but as a protestant not as a catholic and he does go to the height of power after not doing much between the ages of 18 and 43 wait i'm getting ahead of myself so he becomes a lawyer he's considered one of the greatest lawyers of all time he did a lot of reform of english common law he was highly recognized for that there's still books and articles you can read about bacon the great lawyer, master of jurisprudence. Um, and that's what he's mainly main, known for during his lifetime, but he was also a master gardener. And he did write officially what are called masks, which are these kind of poetry dance events with people in masks, kind of interacting with royalty in, in, the, in the big areas. And they still can put them on. They can be performed sort of like operas. The really weird kind of like uh, performance art things, but he did write some of those and that's the public bacon. Uh, but what's really clear from the research and I'm far from alone on this is that he was absolutely the originator of the Rosicrucians, which is a strange secret society that was really sort of a hoax. But it was about a invisible college of learned men who were going to change the world and it created a stir it supposedly came out of germany created a furor in germany and france it was it was highly christian because it had to be right you could not be not christian but it also had these overtones in the middle east secret knowledge life extension and what they wanted was to extend life indefinitely and end old age and even death and i think they threw end poverty in there too but they were doing this work for the benefit of mankind and that they were on to something and they had this secret knowledge and and everyone bought it and everyone wanted to try to find out who the rosicrucians are And nobody ever publicly claimed to be a Rosicrucian. But if you know Bacon's work, they're so similar. The Rosicrucian Manifesto and Bacon's ideas in some of his books, like The New Atlantis, are so similar. And in fact, The New Atlantis, which is his most popular book, it's short. It's kind of a fable, kind of a little, not a fairy tale, but an adventure story. Involving a ship that gets lost and winds up in this Shangri-La island where it's scientific based. It's an island run by science and it's kind of perfect in this island, you know, that's so scientific, sends out secret envoys around the world. So that they know everything that's going on in the world, but nobody in the world knows they even exist. They're like some little island in the South Seas. And, of course, it's run by the elite. It's kind of like the philosopher kingdom of uh, Plato. And they never really existed. Nobody ever found an actual Rosicrucian, but they they exist today. There's the Amor, American Society of the Rosy Cross.
0: No way. You're saying there were no actual Rosicrucians back in the
1: day? No. No, nobody ever admitted to being one. It was a kind of a hoax, except it pointed to the truth that there was a secret society. But it wasn't Christian. And it really didn't have mankind's best intentions. It had their own best intentions at heart. But no, nobody ever admitted to being a Rosicrucian. But now there's a Rosicrucian society that traces itself back to Bacon. And most mainstream scholars won't say that Bacon started the rosicrucians but there is one she's the leading scholar of uh, elizabethan times in london her name is Frances yates she's she's huge she wrote so many books she was employed by the warburg institute which is the warburg banking family they had one brother who went into uh, research and he told his other brother you can be head of the bank you can inherit the bank If you agree to buy me any book I ever want, and the big brother said, "Yes, sure," and the little brother bought thousands and thousands of books, and now it's the Warburg Institute. and And Frances Yates studies the occult in Elizabethan England. She wrote a book called The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. She wrote a book that partly got me going on this called Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, which is traces the history of the occult in Europe, just really fascinating. I've always been interested in mysticism and religion, and it just all comes together. And she says, she says in the book, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, that it is very curious that Francis Bacon's New Atlantis is so connected to these Rosicrucian symbolism and ideals. Hmm. We need to think about that some more. She won't come out and say (laughs) he obviously started it because officially it was supposed to have started in England. It was a psychological operation. They threw it into England. uh, So you couldn't see the connection in the writing. It started in German, eventually translated into French. And it was just a a Fuhrer. And the Rosicrucians, according to all the Freemasons, were an early Masonic society. And the Masons bear the fingerprints of Francis Bacon as well. And so now we're into this enormous topic.
0: So wait, before oh, we get into that, let's yeah. just, um, did you narrowly define Gnosticism? Like Gnosticism comes from the root to know, right? And it's... Yeah, not yet. Let's wait on that. Oh, okay. okay.
1: Because we're not really there yet. I just want to say this, though, about Bacon. Um, And that since he was a very young boy, he was recognized as having an extraordinary memory and intellect. And these are some quotes from a few of his contemporaries. To quote Macaulay, he had the most exquisitely constructed intellect that has ever been bestowed on any of the children of men. Halam described him as the wisest, greatest of mankind and affirmed that he might be compared to Aristotle. Lucidides, Tacitus, Machiavelli, Davila, Hume, all of these together. And confirming this view, Addison said that he possessed all at once those extraordinary talents, which were divided amongst the greatest authors of antiquity. At 12, his industry was above the capacity and his mind beyond the reach of his contemporaries. He had acquired a thorough command of the classical and modern languages. He was reading Greek and Latin at the age of seven. He, after all, had surveyed all the records of antiquity. After the volumes of men, betook himself to the volume of the world, meaning nature, and conquered whatever books possessed, having while still a youth declaring that he had taken all knowledge to be his province. He had read, marked, and absorbed the contents of nearly every book that had been printed. He was a freak. He was, as I say, Mozart. He was a Mozart of languages instead of music.
0: Let me ask you a He was a, question. a
1: Mozart of books instead of symphonies. Go ahead.
0: Other, so... If if he's Shakespeare, Shakespeare is a reflection of that mind. I see that I could get a 12-volume work of Francis Bacon for $1,500. Do you think, but his motto was the hidden life is best. Do you feel like his knowledge and insight has, is that you can get to it or is, is oh, it lost or yeah. hidden?
1: Oh, no. No, no. Because, well, that's why he's the most influential person who ever, existed, ever lived, because he was also Shakespeare. He not only created the scientific revolution, on purpose, knowing full well what he was doing. At the age of 15, he said, he dropped out of college because I'm bored. Plato and Aristotle bore me. So he said at 15, they're great. I love them. But we got to do more. You know, we got to go further they're not useful. He already knew that he wanted to increase the pace of technological change as a 15-year-old boy. He was recognized as a genius as a very young boy. And the rate of change did increase like pretty much soon after that. England went into a civil war, but you know, the industrial revolution began right there in London because of francis bacon because they started creating new machines that didn't exist before i because of bacon
0: i have a book on my shelf i I think it's called it's by harold bloom and i think it's called inventing the human and it's about shakespeare so to the extent that bacon intentionally did the scientific revolution but then while he did shakespeare he was actually trying to to reshape humanity itself
1: We are going to get to that. We didn't really get to Shakespeare yet. I just want to give you an idea of what he was like as a person, as a very young boy. Uh, And then, this is the kicker, at the age of 15, he was sent to France as a spy by Francis Walsingham. Francis Walsingham is the originator of the modern Secret, uh, Secret Service, modern intelligence agencies, trace back to Francis Walsingham. He was like the number two guy in London behind the Queen and this guy named William Cecil, Secretary of State. They both were masters of espionage. And they grabbed Francis. That's what intelligence agencies do. They, they, they want the best and the brightest because I don't think anything's more complicated than a large espionage ring. The double agents, the triple agents, the setups, the traps, the codes. They sent him to France as a spy, which were actually they were friendly with England at the time. And he was uh, an attaché to the Paris diplomat, uh, the English diplomat to Paris named Amias Paulette. And he even was a courier. He would come back with messages. And I think it was because he had a memory. He didn't need to write anything down. He had, I think he had a photographic memory is what we would call it today he was people were flipped out by his memory so i think he would just he couldn't steal a message from a guy if he had it memorized and they didn't know he was a spy he was a little kid Uh, and so all this stuff happened in france and he comes back to london at the age of 18 because his father died and his father his father didn't leave him anything in the will so for the rest of his life for a long time he was mostly poor supposedly this is all a cover story the weird thing is this from the age of 18 to 43 the smartest man in london doesn't have a job elizabeth will not give him a position in the government william cecil won't give him a position in the government walsingham doesn't give him a position he he becomes a lawyer right he goes to law school becomes a lawyer, and doesn't practice law. All the records are still there of every court case. Francis Bacon was not yet a lawyer. And he sat on the House of Commons, which at that time took about two weeks a year. And over the next 25 years, he wrote one book called Essays. that only had 10 essays at the time. That, that's one of his most famous books. He eventually enlarged it to like 40 essays or something. And a couple little notes, his only position was learned counsel to the queen, which was an unpaid position. And he was hanging around the court, but he had no power at all. They didn't use him. But the, the coincidence is, it just so happens, that those years were the years that Shakespeare started to appear in London. And the other, I don't want to let, save this to the end, I usually save this to the end because it sounds so crazy. The scuttlebutt was that Francis Bacon was really Queen Elizabeth's son. He was the secret son of Queen Elizabeth. Ah. It was a, yeah. There was an enormous amount of evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence or hints. And that's one reason she couldn't give him a position in the government, because he actually had a claim to the throne. <gasps> so she, she wouldn't let him anywhere near any position of power. Elizabeth was completely paranoid and would never got married. Right? She was known as a virgin queen, and she was far from a virgin. But she refused to get married because she knew what would happen to her. You know, a power block would form around her husband, and she'd be dead meat. She knew that. Her own mother had her head chopped off by her father. And Anne Boleyn's head was chopped off by Elizabeth's father when she was three. These people chopping crazy, their heads off, man. It was a crazy place, Brad. And if you went a little too far and you committed treason, they did to you what's called drawing and quartering you in public, which I, I hate to even is. tell you yeah. what it is. Oh I, my I hate gosh. to say it out loud. It's that so was gross. Real? Ah, was it that real? Happened? They did it on a regular basis. Oh. Yeah. So that's why I say Bacon's life straddled three eras. That's really the dark ages. That's the middle evil era. Renaissance was in full swing in Italy, it really hadn't come all the way to England yet. England was pretty primitive. The English language was primitive. They still did stuff like that in public. Uh, and then the Enlightenment era, which Bacon supposedly started. It's like this giant straddling, you know, three eras. But it was a brutal, brutal place. And of course we think of the nice music and William Shakespeare and you know Manners and yeah, it was incredible, and that, but that intensity of pressure produced espionage, the greatest espionage service of all time. The Brits are masters of spying, and spies have to be great actors. You're on stage 24 hours a day, seven days a week, one mistake, and you're dead. Greatest spy is the greatest actor, and the greatest actor is the greatest spy. And what do you know, but Francis Walsingham started a theater troupe. Because even regular actors make great spies, especially when they travel. They keep an eye on things. And what we're getting to, and where Shakespeare comes into this, because it's hard to talk about the Freemasons. It's such a big topic. But entertainment, and this is where ties in today too, Brad, is uh, entertainment is controlled by the state because it's such an important part of everyone's life and, and communicates such a powerful message to people that you rarely see any entertainment or any entertainer that actually challenges power. Or they so, hint at for a, a little, little while
2: though, if they do, like Dave Chappelle <sighs> did, That he came back. Exactly. Anthony Bourdain.
0: He ain't coming back.
1: Exactly. Paul Robeson. I don't know if you know what happened to Paul Robeson, but it's not pretty.
0: No, what I happened, mean, he, he,
1: he, uh, he got his brain scrambled from the CIA while he was in Russia, and he was never the same. It kind of turned him into a blithering idiot. And this is one of the most talented men of all time. He was an athlete, an actor, a singer, an orator. He was a huge hero to the people like you can't. Wow. let, Yeah. You can't let people get too popular unless yes. they're on your team. Yeah. Right. right.
0: Or it's if a no brainer. I think that of JFK and even Ronald Reagan, like they were probably yeah. in on it all along. But when the time came, if they weren't going to do what they needed to do or if they had a the, uh, will of their own, that's a big problem.
1: How many entertainers have spoken out against this insane lockdown or insane mask wearing? Just a couple of old
0: guys, Van Morrison, Two and guys. Eric Clapton, yeah.
1: And Eric was late to the game, it was only after he got his hands paralyzed. It's pretty much Van Morrison and a couple, whatever. I think it was Kirstie Alley. There's a couple guys that were kind of right wing, John Boyd. Uh, yeah. I can't remember their names now, but Charles almost gone. I was shocked. Sorry.
2: Charles in charge.
0: Maybe. Maybe that's what all the Me Too stuff was for, to get all those people canceled before, you know, anybody who thought because Charles in charge, that's Chachi, right? He yeah.
2: he's on he Fox was all the time.
0: falsely accused of rape and he stood up for himself, but he was canceled anyway.
1: Well, Monica, you came up with the theory that Bill Cosby got canceled because he would have spoken out against Black Lives Matter.
0: Or I don't know about that specifically. An But he was getting another show and he was just a guy who thought for himself. I mean, I didn't like half the things he said, but he just said what he what he believed. And that's a big problem for someone that influential in a minority community that they want to control.
1: Yeah, but he didn't buy this thing that every white person is a racist or America is even that racist a country. Sure, there's racism here. But he's I like, I don't know hey. about that. Oh, yeah. He's like, pull up your pants, boy. I know. But he right. was
0: talking to his he was talking to his audience. I think he wasn't. I don't know. I, I don't think he was. He was a no, great uniter. I think that he The no. problem with him was that he was trying to tell people not to fall for the plot of neutralizing yourself by being economically unviable in the mainstream with with bad English
1: and right. stuff. Anyway, he He wasn't with the program. Yeah,
0: he he wasn't wasn't with with the the program. program. I'll give you that. I'll give you that.
1: And they can't. I I love that idea you had. And it started back here. Like control, control the entertainment. It's good because you don't get any wrong messages out and you put your propaganda out. And uh, I don't know if we should jump from Shakespeare. We'll get, get back to the Freemasonry. But the links between Bacon and Shakespeare Are mind blowing. There are so numerous, and and he was accused of being Shakespeare in his lifetime. The first Shakespeare poem poem that ever came out is called Venus and Adonis, an answer poem came back. So like painting was to Renaissance was to Florence, Renaissance Florence. Poetry was to Renaissance England, and somebody wrote a poem. They get an answer poem, and poems were passed around. Poems were really popular. And it got very sophisticated. And this poem came out of nowhere called Venus and Adonis, which has all these occult overtones. But it's basically about the goddess Venus and her infatuation with Adonis and kind of throwing herself at him. It was very popular. It's racy. And someone immediately wrote a poem and said, this sounds like bacon. (laughs) Criticizing the poem, making fun of it. This is Marlowe. This is Marlowe or Bacon.
0: Were their si- styles so similar, Marlowe and Bacon, yeah. that they... Yeah, Marlowe and, Marlo also and
1: Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Marlowe and Shakespeare styles are very similar. In fact, the Oxford Society, Shakespeare Oxford Society, officially states that Christopher Marlowe helped to write like four Shakespeare plays. Okay. It's now a given that that Shakespeare had co-authors. That's like a mainstream theory now after many years. Right.
0: And there's still not a single thing that actually proves that Shakespeare could write, correct?
1: OK, so that's what got me onto that, <laughs> is that I heard a podcast, this guy named Alan Green, who's uh, more on the mystical side of things. And I, he just said there's not a single letter of William Shakespeare to anyone, and there's not a single letter from anyone to William Shakespeare. There's no examples of his writing except for six signatures of his, three of which are on his last will. It's known that his daughter could not read or write. Uh, Like nothing. There's not a scrap of manuscript from 36, 37 plays. Not one piece of writing in his handwriting, original manuscript. Not a piece of a poem. And it gets way worse than that. There's actually not a single reference to him as a writer from his contemporaries while he was alive.
0: How did he sell? What's the official story of I mean, presumably he wrote us. He wrote a play and he had to, like, make copies of it to give to the actors or he had to sell a copy of it to somebody who right. was going to put it on. I mean, there have to be in his hand. There was so no, he didn't have a, yeah. a scribe. Right.
1: No, no record. There's no record of anybody paying him for any play ever. There's records for all the other playwrights. They can find these records.
0: So he's like a podcaster. It's just a hobby.
1: No, he didn't do it. No,
0: <laughs> I know. I know. I'm just it. saying, he, oh, how, okay. how could this guy have spent all of his time doing something that he never got paid yeah. for all of his time? Right. Not to mention all the trips to Rome and Paris to get the actual settings right.
1: Yeah. And how come uh, he never got arrested? They were arresting playwrights all the time and throwing him the tower, sometimes torturing, torturing them. Really? He wrote a like very for making fun of the play. queen? Oh. Oh, forget it. Oh, my God. Forget it. You didn't say one word. It was a police state. If spies were everywhere, you in the north of England, you couldn't say anything against the queen if the wrong person heard you. If you if the crown felt threatened or the Anglican church felt threatened, you couldn't criticize the Anglican church. I couldn't say anything about being an atheist. You could get tortured for saying you're an atheist. They tortured people all the time. They used what's called the rack. That's when you're uh, racked with yeah. guilt. <laughs> <laughs> you're racked with a- agony. That's getting on the rack. Wow, it was no big deal. I'll, I'll rack you. She, the Queen would joke about it like Obama. I'll drone bomb you. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll put you on the rack. And the queen was better than King Henry VIII, who was a
2: psychopath. Did he cut off all his wives' heads? Is that the one that did that? I think
1: three, three heads were lost of his. to
2: wonder why yeah. that third one decided to marry. <laughs> <laughs> I never,
0: I never got that why he had to breach with the Catholic Church to get a divorce when he could have just cut another head off, right? I mean, like it, it doesn't even make no, sense why he, he mixed and he matched.
1: Couldn't. No, no, no. She was Catherine of Aragon.
0: Oh, oh. She oh, was the oh, daughter got it, of the. King. Got it, got it. Yeah, 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 he, yeah. Right, 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 right.
1: And she was I saw the brother. movie.
0: <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> oh, never mind.
1: <laughs> uh, I'd like to see that. So he couldn't, he, he, was, he was, he couldn't, his hands were tied. I understand. So this is why this era is so fascinating. It just goes on and on and on and on. And the, so, There were a couple other hints, people saying, you know, what's with this Shakespeare? Uh, A couple other poems came out, but always it was stopped. You couldn't talk about it. It just chatter stopped right away because, in my opinion, this was a state operation. Shakespeare was an operation. It was being run by Walsingham and Bacon as propaganda, but much, much more because Shakespeare studied the human mind. Shakespeare literally changed how we think. The reason he's thought of as one of the greatest philosophers of all time is that he invented or codified a new way of thinking called inductive reasoning. So when you take a philosophy class, you're taught about deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. And deductive reasoning is from Plato and Aristotle and the Greeks and inductive reason is from reasoning is from francis bacon and he wow. ma- yeah he managed to change how we think just in that one area and and that scientific thinking is inductive and he saw that deductive reasoning doesn't lead you to any grand conclusions and, and he wanted i think
0: they're trying to negate the val- validity of inductive reasoning now
1: absolutely well, it is a little invalid because it doesn't offer proof. Science doesn't actually offer proof because there's always the future. okay, you may have but- missed something. You may find the black swan, all swans are right, right, and then one day you see a black swan, there goes that there. well. But just
0: okay, maybe not inductive reasoning, but the power of induction itself—they want to negate through psychology and sociology. Like you're observing something and knowing it's true from firsthand right. observation, they don't. That's interesting. They won't allow that, and so they say, "No, there's uh, there are underlying things that uh, make people not respond to stimulus, and there's sociological factors that make people, you know, people aren't really." Whatever. So I just I found that's that, interesting.
1: that they interesting.
0: they want you not to think about that because it would if you it's like the PCR test. The PCR test is there to triumph or trump triumph over or trump uh your <laughs> powers of induction.
2: That book of his too interesting. Novum Organum. I yeah. that's one of those books that I remember vividly reading because it was just like it was kind of a challenge, some of it, but like Plato, the first time I read Plato, I I remember reading vividly because of the impact. This is another one of those books that I I remember because I was just like, whoa. Oh, you study philosophy? I I like philosophy. I didn't study in college, but I do on my own self-study.
1: Oh, wow. Well, there's a quote from Novum Organum. When this gets more now into the spy operation, oh, my God, are, are we almost done?
0: We we can keep going. We can keep going. Let's go to the bottom of the Uh, hour. We we
1: didn't even really get to Shakespeare. Francis Bacon was Shakespeare. There's overwhelming (laughs) evidence.
0: You don't have to rush.
1: (laughs) Jump ahead to the 1850s, an American woman named Delia Bacon started the ball rolling. There's a society called the Francis Bacon Society. 150 years of scholarly journals amassing evidence for Bacon. That's a whole nother topic called the Shakespeare authorship question. It's been proven beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that Shakespeare did not write the plays. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. He had no education. And the Shakespeare plays require the kind of mind that was Bacon's, a massive amount of information. I'm in the groupist category. I think a group of people wrote it, but it was run. A, geez, we didn't even get to Macbeth. Wow. See, this is such, such big topics. We've, you know, we don't have time for the Freemasons. Well,
0: but here's the thing, Robert, mm -hmm. It's that your podcast is so great and there are so many hours. I mean, I literally listened to each episode twice, so there was absolutely no way we were going to be able to cover it all. But that's okay because people are going to want to go listen to it.
1: Well, that's the thing that I say in the podcast. Each of these topics is huge. I mean, the Knights Templars became the Freemasons. That's an established fact, which is mind blowing. In and of itself, the Knights Templars, it's an incredible story. They started getting burned at the stake by the French king who took all, took all their wealth. Yeah, where's the money? Because I think Da Vinci Code, the money disappeared, the ships, they were masters of the sea, they were masters of banking, they started banking. They were into the occult. So the, the Gnosticism comes from the Knights Templars who went to the Middle East to defend the pilgrims, and they got infected with Gnosticism gnosticism is a is a a bunch of sects that all have one similar idea and and a lot of them are are kind of christian jesus christ figures prominently but it's not the jesus of the bible it's a jesus telling them different stories about how the universe works and what the metaphysical layers are that go up to god and he, and each of these sects is different, but they all contain elements of ancient religions like Zoroastrianism, um, Kabbalah, uh, Orphism, Neoplatonism. You know, Plato talked a lot about, you know, how the universe is constructed. But Judaism's kind of boring. They just have these like patriarch stories and one God and you just learn about, you know, Moses and Esther and Christianity Pretty simple, you know, love your neighbor, be a good person, stay away from evil. The Gnostics were wild. They had all these fantastical imagery, a little bit like Book of Revelation, And they also didn't believe in conventional morality. And they also believed, and this is the one thing that connects, you know, probably two, three hundred different Gnostic sects together, is that the God of this world is not, the God of this world, the creator God of this world is not the true god and that he's almost an evil god he's called the demiurge he's just a craftsman he was a an underachiever but he's managed to trap our souls here so they feel like the earth is not just an illusion like maybe the buddhists think because buddhism's tied in and hinduism's tied in and christianity not so much judaism that the world is not the real world but we're trapped here it's a prison planet and you have to escape your job is to escape and you can escape one way by being super pure and rejecting the world kind of like a hermit you know kind of like a buddhist monk in the cave or you can escape the world by violating all the principles of the world and doing magic and upending the order inverting everything and you gain gnosis you gain knowledge you know you do magic and you gain knowledge and gnosis will allow if you have the gnosis if you have the knowledge this will allow your soul to escape confinement and they believed in reincarnation but if you do the right things if you're a gnostic you learn what jesus really said not what catholic church says that's just a cover story that's for the dummies you learn here this is what What's really going on in life and learn it, get gnosis, you escape. But what they think is that the world is essentially evil because it's trapped their souls here. So they have no conventional morality. And they were known for, you know, taking drugs and having a lot of sex and not adhering to the laws of conventional morality. And the Templars got accused of worshipping Baphomet. So if you've ever heard of Baphomet. It comes from the templars they're accused of worshiping this strange god and this weird head called baphomet and doing these strange practices that are very similar to gnosticism and that's why the church moved on them and the church moved very heavily on another group of gnostics called the albigensians and it's called the albigensian crusades of the 1200s Uh, It's not very well known, but the Pope ordered, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered in the south of France, which is a stronghold of the Templars. And not long after that, they moved on the Templars and they started and they moved on them all at once in France. It was King Philip and uh, the Pope at the time. They arrested hundreds of Templars, burned a bunch of them at the stake, put the Grand Master Jacques de Malloy on trial, burned him in front of... Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in 1314. And that was the end of the Templars, and they had to go underground. This is where the intense secrecy began, because if they found you, they would burn you, especially in France, a little bit in England. And the Templars escaped to Scotland, to Portugal, but all their lands got taken by the church or some local king. So this this uh, slaughter, almost a genocide, occurred because of the church, and it created this intense anger, or resentment. You can imagine amongst the surviving Templars, who had to go deep underground, and this is where the Freemasons got all the passwords and handshakes. They had to be completely secret, and the eventually they morphed into the Freemasons about. 300 years later, 250 years later, during the lifetime of Francis Bacon, that already existed, the Freemasons already existed, but they got their nomenclature and their structure and their modern uh, structure together. And they weren't officially announced till 1717 in London. But there's obvious hints of Freemasonry much earlier. Hey, right around the time of Francis Bacon, hey, there's tons of Freemasonry. In Shakespeare. So the Shakespeare, Rosicrucian, Freemason thing all tie together through Francis Bacon. But what Freemasonry does, which I try to do in episode three, and they show you the initiation procedures, ties back to the ancient secret societies, ancient Gnostic religions, where you had to be initiated into the religion. It wasn't for everyone. It could be very hard to get into these religions and these sects. And you got initiated. And once you were in, you know, it was very hard to leave. And if you told the secrets, what you learned inside that religion, you suffered greatly. And still to this day, to be initiated as a Freemason, you take an oath that you will not divulge a single thing that happens in the lodge unless it's to another Freemason, or you get your guts pulled out and burned, and you get your head chopped off and thrown in the river at a certain time. And every Freemason says that. I promise not to divulge any secrets, or you can, you know, cut my guts open to this day. And they have a knife at your throat while you say it, and you're blindfolded, and you're surrounded by a bunch of other men, and you get a modern initiation into a secret society. It's a pale imitation of what the old initiations were. I think those old initiations are still happening today. But that's how they get this cohesiveness. And then the British Navy spread Freemasonry all around the world. There's Freemason lodges in practically every country in the world now. But it's supposedly just a fraternal brotherhood. It's not even a religion. You couldn't, of course, of course, you couldn't call it a religion, right, in 1717. You couldn't say, hey, we're starting a new religion over here. You know, you get your head chopped off. But if you call it a fraternal brotherhood, Okay, we'll just change the label, and then spread it around the world. So they have the secret society spread all around the world, which is perfect for espionage, because secrets can get passed, and you know you're safe. And so that's a whole other area that that Bacon relates to are secret societies, which go back to the dawn of civilization. They were huge in ancient Greece. It's it's, an, it's a really fascinating topic that I. Eventually, I'll have to get into, but it involves, you know, tweaking someone's brain. You know, you, you, I think it involves giving them a, a death experience on drugs. And if you ever heard about the Elysian Mysteries in, in Greece, they went on for fifteen hundred years, and nobody ever told the secret. They still don't know what happened in was that it, cave outside of Athens.
0: Was that it that you had ever to do with
1: drugs? Who uh-huh.
0: recommended the immortality key to me?
1: No, I recommended yeah The uh, secret the Power of Ritual yeah, in, yeah. in Ancient Societies.
0: I, I got them both at the same time. Two different people recommended them. And I picked up the other one first, which is called The Immortality Key. And it's about that uh, ayahuasca, I think it is. Um, it's yeah. the drug experience in Peru that is supposed mm-hmm. to. The idea is if you die now, you, you will elude death. Forever or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I haven't gotten very far into the book, but what you're talking about with the Greeks sounds very much like that. And it does cover in the book that these rituals have occurred all around the world.
1: Yeah, the secret societies are all around the world. Yeah. All involve initiation. All a little bit different, but they think they think the Greeks might have been doing mushrooms. But they transform you in the initiation. Even Marcus Aurelius did it. And they all felt like they gained a new understanding of life. But the Freemasons recreated that ancient secret society initiation ceremony. You have to be initiated three times to be a Mason. But it created the glue that held the empire together. One reason they were so phenomenally successful and nobody's ever been it's by far the biggest empire of all time. It's by far the most powerful. But what they did was hide that power. They, they, they won World War I. They won World War II. And then they kind of slipped away behind cover of the atom bomb, which we dropped. And suddenly America is the most powerful. But it's still the British Empire. Still Britain. Britain. English language is everywhere in the world. English sports, soccer, tennis, everywhere in the world. We
2: did some shows Uh, on how they have influenced that whole Russia did it narrative from 2016 through the think tank, the Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. How they were pulling a lot of the strings on that narrative and how they were all laughing together about how they like to break up countries.
1: Oh, that's what they've done. And that's what Macbeth is about. They, they're masters at running these operations. The British were there. The British killed the uh, Rasputin. The British broke up Russia. Tell me this. What's the one royal family in the world that has any influence after all these years? Dutch. First first guess.
0: <laughs> I was going to say English, but the Dutch, don't they?
1: Dutch have no influence. Oh, they don't. They still you a royal the family. Rich.
0: I think they're the one, the I think they're Elizabeth. the behind, I know, I know, I know that's what you're going for, but I'm just saying like the Dutch one is like a little surprise, a sleeper.
1: Oh yeah, they're still They there, have all the oil, right? The Spanish king's gone, the French. Yeah, yeah, Italian, yeah. No, I totally
0: agree. And they're probably behind, yeah. the English were probably behind eliminating all the other kings.
1: That's what I'm saying. Right, okay. Oh, they've known, long been known that the freemasons were involved in the french revolution and it all had these gnostic overtones the french revolution was crazy it was totally a cult napoleon was a freemason all these revolutions you know they they couch it in good idea you know nice ideas liberty egalite fraternite but it's really about them getting power and what happened after the french revolution in a few years they get an emperor they get this crazy you know emperor oh we That's what i a always said what an emperor what an improvement
0: The revolutions all get hijacked pretty quickly. The Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, even the American Revolution. Uh, They get the people all riled up for all the wrongs that they justifiably don't like. And then it gets swapped out with a whole nother group a couple of years later.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, this is what they do to a T. And what I found, because I knew it was going to be there, I analyzed the play Macbeth. You'll have to turn into my podcast if The Hidden Life is Best dot com for for links to this and i guess spreaker apple is going to be coming out soon and and i'm gonna i'm gonna run through francis bacon's life again and then do a deep dive into macbeth and all this stuff is in macbeth and i really wanted to talk about macbeth i can't believe this hour went by so fast <laughs> i'm really shocked i'm not used to being interviewed this is only the second time i've been interviewed so i've learned a lot But I I hope this sounds fascinating to people.
0: It is. And I have to say for Macbeth, it's my favorite and it happens to be the shortest. So a person could actually read Macbeth, then go listen to your podcast, then reread Macbeth. I haven't listened. I haven't heard your podcast, but I can't wait. I mean, I literally wait. I, I email you directly. I'm like, when is the next
1: episode? coming <laughs> out? It's going to be out soon. It's it's almost done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I'm sorry I spent so long on that intro. Uh, but yeah, so we've got no, the that's Rose great. It's... Freemasons, Shakespeare, Knights Templar, Secret Son of Elizabeth. Plus. He was acknowledged by his contemporaries as this unbelievably brilliant man, but he was twice or three times as brilliant. As anyone knows. And
0: here's the thing. How likely is it that Shakespeare, who is considered one of the most brilliant and influential people of all time, happened to live at the exact same time as someone who is also acknowledged as being one of the most brilliant people of all time, if not the. And the one guy has no evidence supporting his A connection between him and why they say he's brilliant, and the other guy was a prolific writer who had traveled the world. I mean, that's the stuff that I really found fascinating. Oh, absolutely! Shakespeare never went anywhere. How the hell did he know what the court of of uh, Venice or Florence or whatever looked like? Like, how could he know that?
1: Absolutely, and Bacon was right in there. And there's hundreds of correspondences between Bacon's writing and Shakespeare, almost the same words. They found his notebooks where he even wrote the word William Shakespeare and Francis Bacon and has quotes from the Shakespeare plays.
0: And he, and it's, he made up words. Smoking Gun. Yeah. Shakespeare he made, made up words just like hundreds Shakespeare does. Words. Yeah.
1: It's like Bacon, he, he was a master of language. He was a genius of language.
0: Give us one probably, Macbeth tidbit
1: Fair is foul and foul is fair others in the midnight air or something but fair is foul and foul is fair is one of the first things witches say and that's a gnostic credo that you turn everything on its head there is no real good and bad they're interchangeable and you actually want to embrace evil to be a whole person because you want to combine opposites the union of opposites so even Good and bad have to be combined. So they feel justified in doing these horrible acts because the goal in alchemy will be something higher. It's a thesis, antithesis, thesis, well, the similar, stuff, but that's Gnostic.
0: The stuff I've read of the 20th century, the Algis Huxley, Aleister Crawley, the Jack Parsons, all the Satanists and Luciferians and stuff, that yeah. it, what you're saying reflects totally how they seem to look at it.
1: Alistair Crowley was a Gnostic. He wrote a book called The Gnostic Mass. Albert Pike, the number one Freemason in America in the 1800s, goes on and on about Gnosticism and Freemasonry. And so and how, how
0: long is your, how many episodes of this podcast? I mean, you could literally probably, this could be just forever.
1: This could go on forever.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm closing I love
1: the circle with the, uh, with the Macbeth analysis. So we get everything's in there. That I want to talk about, especially the espionage, which comes in big, big time. in Macbeth. Uh, yeah, so check it out and it kind of closes the circle and I'll have to figure out where to go. There's so many ways to go. Hopefully we'll start interviewing people.
0: Well, give me. Oh, well, actually, someone did just contact me wanting to talk about the symbolism in the Bible. And I wonder if that ties into some of the stuff that Francis Bacon put in there. So if yeah. if that is the Bible turn it on to you. So why don't you just right now give people just a, an overview, tell us what your podcast is, what in your words it's about or your point or you know, your goal with it or whatever, just uh, give people a, a reason to go and where to go. Uh,
1: my podcast, not, uh, Francis Bacon, the Gnostic English Empire dives into the hidden life of Francis Bacon and exposes how he was the brainchild of British Empire, and that he did it for Gnostic reasons, and that he's known as the father of modern science, but he was actually an occult Gnostic, determined to take over the planet. And I have a direct quote of him saying, take over the universe. In his book, Nava Morganum, that you brought up, Brad, Mm -hmm. it kind of goes by. I I read it. Now, it's a big book. I read it on my first second episode and episode four i'm going to read it again it's just mind-blowing quote about ambition and what what is ambition but my theory is that they want to take over the planet because they're at war with god and it's a luciferian war with god they're luciferians gnostics are very similar to luciferians dude that you're blowing actually, my mind that's yeah. actually what's going on is that they're they're in a war with god and that's why they're so ruthless and, brutal, and they want total control of everything because they think they have the gnosis, They think they deserve it. And they think God is actually evil.
0: Dude, that's, that's it's where you crazy. got me. That's where you got me because yeah. I, I'm trying to figure out what is going on in the world today. And that is pretty much the best explanation I can think yeah. of. Holy, I God. know
1: that's it, That's the real story, right? It's what's going on. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, thanks That's for the chat, guys.
0: Oh, it's been a real yeah. pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. I hope to meet you again at the next uh, New York meetup. But anyway, I'll, I'll send you a personal invitation. And yeah, thank you so much. That was really interesting. And I absolutely cannot wait for the next episode.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Monica. Okay. Thanks, bye, Robert. Thanks a lot. See you later, Robert. Take care. Bye bye.